Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. Do you need some new earbuds? Do you need some new headphones? Go to tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code other people, O T H E R P P L, and get 33% off of any purchase at tweakedaudio.com. Start the new year off right. Get some earbuds, get some headphones, improve your listening situation at tweakedaudio.com. Tweaked Audio. These are earbuds, these are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person, just one Happy New Year, everybody. (laughs) Happy New Year. This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listing. I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. I hope you're doing well. Vanessa Hua is my guest. Her debut story collection is called Deceit and Other Possibilities, available now from Willow Press. Also worth mentioning, Vanessa has a debut novel due out in the spring of 2018. It is called A River of Stars. It will be published by Ballantyne. Is it Ballantine or Ballantine? I think it's Ballantine. I could be wrong. A River of Stars, the debut novel from Vanessa Hua, due out spring of 2018. Uh, She and I will be in conversation in just a moment. So uh, as I was saying, Happy New Year. I hope you had a good holiday season. I had a good holiday season. It was fairly relaxing. We were fairly inert. I like that. Um, I got some new podcast gear from Santa Claus. That's always exciting. I got a mobile microphone from Santa Claus trying to learn how to use that trying to decide how I should use that trying to decide what the sound quality will be if I'm out in the field trying to record at large like there's a part of me that wants to just like take the microphone out into Los Angeles and just walk up to people start asking them questions (laughs) I don't know how that'll go I feel like if I, if I could say that, like I was, uh, you know, I, I feel like, uh, I don't know, podcasting is fairly uh, mainstream at this point, but I feel like if you're just walking up to strangers in the street and you're like, yeah, I'm some guy with a podcast, they might not be receptive, uh, as much as they would otherwise be. If you said that you were with NPR or some such, uh, esteemed organization, do you know what I'm talking about? 
I guess there's only one way to find out. And people generally like to, 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 you know, to be interviewed. They like to talk, I think, especially in Los Angeles. People like to perform. There's so many people in this town who have a performance uh, thing. They love to perform and be on stage and have attention, but there's only so much of that to go around. So I feel like a lot of people have this deficit or feel that they have this deficit in their lives. So any opportunity that they can find to perform, even if it's an opportunity that might not be on the surface uh, performative, they will make it so. Like a lot of fitness instructors in Los Angeles are clearly like, you know, uh, aspiring actors. That's their stage. <laughs> I had a spinning instructor a couple days ago who was uh, a regular comedian. So uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, listen to me. I'm, I'm podcasting in my garage. But of course, I'm not on stage. I'm, uh, I'm hidden from the world. I'm isolated. So uh, anyway, I got this gear. I, I have a microphone that, uh, or like a, a mobile recording unit that I can hook a microphone up to. I got to get the microphone still. And then I also got this microphone that I can actually attach to my phone, which is supposedly pretty good. And then I got like wind socks that you put over the microphone to muffle any kind of wind noise. There's all this gear available now. It's pretty crazy. I also made, uh, you know, I, I resist this whole notion of the holidays in general, or like putting extra emphasis on uh, certain days and, you know, having these days that are loaded emotionally where there are, you know, there are all these expectations placed upon me to feel a certain way, like ratchet up my happiness. But uh, when it comes to the new year, you know, and I, I think this is just the way that things fell for me because I finished a draft of my novel at the end of November. I handed it off to my agent uh, to have her read told her to take the month of December basically. And, uh, that was kind of the agreement. So in the month of December, when things are sort of slow business wise and people are kind of mentally checked out, it was a good time for me to, to kind of evaluate things, make plans for the future obsessively. And, uh, I did that and I, you know, I, I decided to make my phone, uh, like, I, I don't know. I, I feel like in the aftermath of the election, I have been um, made aware of how my consumption habits, media-wise, are affecting my uh, health. Truly, like affecting my health. So um, I made my phone a dumb phone. I have an iPhone, but it's now a dumb phone. I just, I just took everything off of it, except for texting and making phone calls. <laughs> Uh, just as an experiment. I also canceled my New York Times subscription, which I know uh, that we're all supposed to be supporting journalism right now. And I've been a regular subscriber and reader of uh, multiple newspapers for a long time. But I'm not doing that anymore. Or at least not for a while. It's not that I'm going to totally shut off and know nothing. But the amount that I was consuming, it, it was needless. And it was affecting me, I feel like. It was making me too stressed out, and it was using up valuable energy that could be better spent elsewhere. So here's what I did. I kind of did something uh, interesting. Like, one of the things I love about the paper, and I really do love reading the morning paper. I think I'm going to miss it, but it's, it's an experiment that I'm running. So in, in lieu of reading the morning paper, I got for Christmas this book that the New York Times just put out, this huge compendium of obituaries called uh, The Book of the Dead. Have you heard about this? It's like one of these giant like gift books that you sort of like set on a coffee table or something, but, uh, it's large format. It has like almost 400 or 350, uh, obituaries 
of uh, notable people. And I, what I was finding when I was reading the paper in the last six weeks or so is that, you know, what's really the most meaningful section of the paper to me, going back a long ways, is the uh, obituary section. I love obituaries. And I think they're actually useful uh, creatively, you know, to read about people's lives. So I got this book, and now in the morning, instead of reading the paper, which lately, for me anyway, has been depressing to an unusual degree, I instead read obituaries, and it's a much happier experience. That should tell you something about the state of the world. Like way happier reading about dead people. (laughs) So, and then uh, on a good news front, I heard from my agent yesterday, just after the new year turned, she read my novel. She really liked it. Aww. Like, uh, no big suggestions for change. I think we're going to go out to the market with it. So that's a little nerve-wracking, a little exciting, bit of a relief that she, she wasn't uh, advocating a page one rewrite or anything crazy like that. It went over well. So now uh, it's the moment of truth, or the moment of truth is rapidly approaching. We'll see how it goes. trying to think of what else it's just basically monitoring my consumption making better deeper use of my time that's the new year for me that's kind of always my life but i'm just uh putting my foot down not going to solve the world's problems on twitter hate to break it to you or at least i'm not going to maybe you are i'll be amazed if you do It's kind of like one of those things where it's like, I just got to start doing what I know I should be doing anyway. Why is that so hard? And also it's a kind of admission. It's a tacit admission that I'm addicted to my phone in the way that I think most of us are. It's not just like, oh, this is something I do all the time. It's a fucking addiction. When you wake up and the first thing you do is reach for your phone, you're addicted. You got a problem. When you go to dinner with friends or family and you put the phone face up on the table and you're sitting there looking at it while you're looking you got a fucking problem. So, you know, I know that my approach is sort of uh, hardcore. I'm not necessarily saying everybody's got to do what I do, but if you're interested, I will tell you this. In the few days that I have not had Safari email or uh, social media on my phone, the amount of time I have spent dicking around on my phone has dropped dramatically. And I think my stress level sort of dropped. Um, I, I, you know, I, I kept, uh, my social media accounts. I kept my Twitter account, my Facebook account, Instagram, which I kind of just started, I got off of. And I, you know, I use Facebook for, uh, the nervous breakdown. I use Facebook for the, for the podcast, uh, Twitter, which is probably my favorite just because it's word-based and sort of jokey and also news-based, um, you know, I, I, I use that for personal and professional reasons, but you know, with Facebook, I quit that years ago personally, you know, like being connected to friends and family, just cause it started to feel like lifestyle advertisements. It was just annoying. Every time I went there, it just made me like sort of tense and people are bleeding and posting stupid bullshit. And so I bailed on that years ago. I've never missed it. Uh, with Instagram, I was initially excited about it because I felt like it was the least, um, 
stressful social media. It's just pictures of people's kids and, oh, look at the clouds and all that kind of stuff. But you know what? It's lifestyle advertisements. That's what it is too. And uh, it's people posting photos that are carefully curated and sort of advertising their life. And uh, not everybody does it that way, but a lot of people do. And I'm just like, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need it. Some people do. Fine. I don't care. I'm not judging. I don't. I'm done. Bye. Like, uh, I'm sorry, everybody, but you're going to have to do without my, my pictures of the sky. I don't know how, and I don't know how the world is going to go on without my pictures of the sky on Instagram. <laughs> All right. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right. Well, Vanessa Hua is my guest. And I should say too, before her, uh, you know, the conversation with her gets going. Uh, if you hear me, I feel like I said fuck in the interview with Vanessa more often than I normally do. I feel like I was cursing more than I normally do. I was a little bit foul mouthed and I was joking with Vanessa, I think, uh, either before we started or after we finished the talk, because the day that she came over to record her interview was, was, uh, also the day it was either day one or day two of my uh, deep editorial work on the Holiday Spectacular episode of this program, which uh, you know it's 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 a big it's a big lift editorially when you're cutting all that audio together. I basically had a three hour party with intoxicated people, recorded it, and then had to make some sort of entertainment out of it. And so I had been sitting there editing audio. I want to say I worked on it. I had a one, I had one 14 hour day. So that wasn't the day Vanessa was here. So yeah, she came over on day two. So it was like a 14 hour day. And then the, the following day I wound up scrapping the 14 hour day version and I recut it in like seven hours and then she came over. And so at that point, I don't know if anybody out there has ever edited audio before, but I don't know what it is, but it makes me crazy. Like tedious. You have to be very focused. And uh, for whatever reason, it made me uh, want to unleash uh, expletives. Not at Vanessa. I wasn't swearing at her. I don't know. I, and maybe I'm, uh, you know, maybe this is all immaterial. Maybe you would never have noticed anything unusual about this conversation. 
But in case you do, in case you're like, wow, Brad sounds tense. Wow, Brad keeps saying fuck. Just want to try to give you some context. All right, folks, here we go. This is my conversation with Vanessa Hua. And her uh, story collection, one more time, is called Deceit and Other Possibilities. Uh, Aside from a year I spent on the East Coast at the Hartford Current, and then um, I worked Hartford, Connecticut? Yes. How was that? Uh, I logged in a lot of miles to Boston and New York. Yeah, I was going to say. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Hartford had one of everything. That's where I had my first Brazilian food, my first Puerto Rican food. So how's Brazilian food? I don't even know if I've ever eaten Brazilian food. I think you go in thinking it's, it'll be spicy because it's somehow like Mexican food, but in fact, it's not, it's, you know, black beans and, um, yuca. It's very flavorful. Okay. So how did, and so you, but you basically by trade a journalist. Well, I was a full-time journalist until 2007, and then I went off to grad school at UC Riverside Mm -hmm. and then I was freelancing and working on my fiction. I've mostly move over fiction, but I still freelance. And this spring I started writing a column for the Chronicle. Oh, you did? Yes. Okay. So yeah. How many people at the Chronicle? And that was where you were uh, prior to 2007. So you have a history there. Yes. How many people, how many people in the newsroom had a novel in the drawer? I'm always curious. Like how many journalists are nursing Oh, I'm sure, sure, many. Um, but they didn't talk about it. Some people talked about it. Uh, Frank Herbert, who was a you know wrote Dune, he, he apparently he was on the copy desk and he apparently wrote it on the the night shift. Okay. Yeah. And what about? And this is the other thing too is that I find that people who have a journalism background are less precious about um, getting started, getting words on the page, having worked in a deadline environment. Uh, writer's block doesn't seem to be as big of an issue. Like, is that a truth? Well, I think my journalism background is, has been good training for my writing for the things you pointed out. Um, I'm, I'm used to being edited and, um, can understand that sometimes those favorite lines can live another day somewhere else. Uh, or I think also just having license to go out and ask questions and wander around neighborhoods and meet people and ask them their stories, um, also prepared me to be a fiction writer. Okay. And, and this is something you always wanted to do, or is this something that you like realized as you were working as a journalist, like, Oh, there's something more here that I want to explore. Oh, I I've been writing uh, fiction since I was a, a little kid oh, okay. in, um, in the first grade or no, the second grade, the teacher, we all had to write stories and we, then she read them aloud and the class had to vote on their favorite one and mine won. But I overheard my classmates say, I only voted for hers because it was the longest. So it was both my first uh, writing contest I won and my first snarky review. Oh, wow. All at, all at once. All at once. But it's funny, you know, like those, those formative experiences, a teacher telling you you're good, winning a contest, like <laughs> right. it makes a difference. That stuff like really is sticky for children. You yeah. Know? I mean, I had similar, like not exactly the same, but similar experiences. And most people I talk to, you know, somewhere along the line, something like that happened. But I always, I also think that, uh, being a writer is, I feel like children only have five things they ever be, want to be when they grow up. Astronaut, firefighter, teacher, writer. So Writer? Yeah. I, I've heard of kids wanting to be a writer and then, but somehow I, other people grow out of it, but I, I didn't. When I was in, uh, when I was teaching uh, college, I was, I would ask my students that, 
and and the, like this is just in teaching comp so it wasn't like specialized or upper level or anything it was just like freshmen what do you guys want to be if you could do anything and like most of them said uh like an actor famous actor that's la though yeah i, I, mean, I was sort of surprised kids by these it. days no yeah. <laughs> i mean well it's, it's sort of what they're exposed to so i guess so when do you do your writing like your fiction writing like uh I'll ask this in two parts. Like when you were working full time, I imagine you were probably sneaking in some fiction writing here and there. And then once you quit and you went to graduate school and then now postgraduate school, like what's your writing routine? And to that, I must add having kids. Yeah. And having, that changes fuck everything, everything up. up. I mean, yeah, when I was working uh, full time, I, or I had to go into an office, then I'd write on weekends or uh, before I'd get up two hours early to write before work. You were workaholic? Well, I just, that was the only time I had. You're so. hardworking though. You're ambitious. <laughs> you went to Stanford. You're um, not fucking around. Right. But, uh, and then I went to grad school, but I did, I didn't have kids and I could, you know, but then you have to be self-directed. You, I mean, you are like teaching and also taking classes. Um, but, but now with kids, of course you have to get them ready for school and then, you know, keep them alive, feed them, Such a pain, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So needy. <laughs> oh, food. Okay. Yes, food. Um, so on one hand, I think my preferred hours of power are either in the morning or in the late afternoon before, um, you know, childcare or the babysitter leaves because you're like, I'm, I'm you know, if I'm up against a deadline, I'm never more productive. Um, but self-imposed or externally imposed? I think that's from being uh, in a newsroom. Oh, right. Yeah. So I just am very aware of the clock. And you, um, Do you work fast? I don't know. It doesn't feel fast. You count words? <laughs> like on a daily... I mean, can you crank so, out a 5,000 word day? No, I don't, I don't write like that. I remember once my dad heard a radio interview with a writer. I think it was like Sidney Sheldon or something like that who dictated his novels and my dad turned to me he's like is that is it like that for you <laughs> no like, no i would love to be able to do right. that it's more like let me cut my veins open get out my quill pen and start writing um but it was something i think zadie smith said that after she became a mom you know she used to worry about what kind of pen she used but now she's like i what, have these hours I, i'm just gonna just write what i can it's you know, if it's good or it's bad, you know, at least I, this is the time I have, and this is the time I'll try to make use of. Yeah. Cause I mean, like, you know, the, I think this is especially the case for women. It's like that whole, the woman who has it all where you're trying to work, you're trying to be like a super mom. You're trying to do you know, yeah, like that whole, um, song and dance. But I think it applies to men too. Like parenthood, um, obviously places a lot of demands on our time Yeah, and usually and, and, and brains like headspace. Yeah, exactly. So you're exhausted physically, emotionally, mentally, uh, or at least more so than you once were. And then, um, you know, most of us are juggling multiple things. It's not like, you know, only the very, very fortunate are just writing fiction or are supported, um, by their spouse or whatever. And so, uh, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot, you know, it, it's a, it's a lot anyway, but then you have kids and you've got to balance more. Um, has it in some way, focused you more because like you hear that too you're like oh you know i had kids and then like zadie smith suddenly i don't care what kind of pen i have suddenly i can just sit down and write and i just all like i talked to amy bender on this show and she was talking about working in like 15 minute increments and you know writing books that way um is that you know is that the attitude you take with it like i'm just going to focus more i'm gonna make the most of my time even though i have less i'm going to drink more caffeine well i think 
I would be lying if I said suddenly that I don't allow myself to get distracted or don't play around on social media. Like that's still part of my life. I, I, I was, I've been thinking about quitting. Yeah. I just talked to someone today who said, well, it was mostly because of the election. I can't deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a fucking just, nightmare. But then you're afraid. I'm you're... cussing a lot today. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's fine. I'm very it's punchy. It's the state of the world. <laughs> uh, I probably blew out the levels on that one. That's okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I, I will say this, um, I have thought about this in some ways. Yes. They, they take up more time. Um, and they, they take a toll physically and mentally they've aged me, but I do think they've opened up the world for me in a way that I didn't understand before I had kids. Because of course, if you're a fiction writer, you think I can imagine the life of anyone else. You know, I can imagine what it likes to, what it's like to be a parent, but just having gone through it, um, and seeing their wonder at even the first time rain falling from the sky, you, it becomes a magical thing again. Or just profound questions like my son asking me what it feels like to be dead. You have twins? Twins. How old yeah. are they? Five. Five. Okay. Yeah. So they're asking, because like my daughter's asking me about death and God and all that kind of stuff. Like, what do you tell them? You, you sort of piece around it, um, or just start, I mean, it's always a struggle, right? Um, I think in that case, I said, you feel nothing. And also since that, that son likes to try everything out, I said, don't try yeah. death because you can't go back. It's not like a video game. Right. Um, but then it's sort of also upsetting to them to imagine like they know my father's gone and th th but they see his picture. And so they want, uh, they want, it's like you have to explain to them suddenly that you, you're not going to be there yeah. someday. Well, but I mean, yeah, my daughter and like, you know, my daughter just the other day, cause she goes to a, a, an Episcopal school. Now, like we're not religious or an, even Episcopal it just happens to be where she goes to school. Yeah. So she's going to chapel and she's learning about Jesus and all this stuff. And, uh, I'm in the car with her this past weekend and she's like, you know, God is, you know, God's he's, he lives in the sky. And I'm like, who told you that? And I'm like, no, I'm like, there's nobody up in the sky. It's not a, it's not a he. And she's like, well, what is it then? Well, then why did they tell me that? And I was like, well, they're full of it. I don't think they know. And like, that's, then <laughs> I'm like, what am I having this conversation with my daughter? I'm like, I don't want someone telling her there's a man in the sky. Just yeah. me personally. Yeah. Um, and so I'm like, well, my God is everything, including you. Like, I'm like, you're God. And she's like, oh, cause I'm like, it, you can either tell them that God is, I mean, this is just me. I don't yeah. know if you feel differently, but I'm like, you, you can either tell them that God is nothing, which I think is sort of a bleak way to look at everything and also hard to like deliver to a kid. Yeah. Respect God's everything. It's not a, he just everything that you see is God. That's the, that's as far as I've gotten with it, you know, but it's tough with kids like well, trying to get it right. And... Did you, I had a whole debate with my husband about Santa. Oh no. I'm, I see my policy is like, and I think I don't, you know, my wife is probably a little bit different than me, but, um, I'm full honesty. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't like the idea of lying to my children, but we ended up g going for Santa because it would otherwise, I don't know. It was part of the cultural they, experience. They want to, but they want to believe <laughs> yeah. my daughter. Like she's been like a Santa. Like this is where I, this is what I do with her. She goes, is Santa real? I go, what do you think? How old is she? She's six. Okay. And th but this goes back. Like she, when she was four or three, she sort of figured it out. And I was like, yeah, of course it's, it's your mom and dad. You know, like there's no such thing as some elf. Why does Santa's handwriting have dad's handwriting? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but I mean, but then like now she's six and she's sort of excited about Santa. Like kids want to believe and they like that magical, you know, magical aspect of it, or at least my kids do. And so I don't want to stomp on that. But then I felt 
part of my complaint was that Santa is sort of training wheels. <laughs> Jesus, like yeah. this idea of someone in the sky watching if you're good or bad. Right. So if you're not going to espouse the religion, then why would you like start them down that path? I don't, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's a little tricky. Like I just, my, my general policy is one of total honesty, but also like, you know, total honesty within the context of, uh, recognizing their age and yeah. tailoring your language so that you don't freak them out unnecessarily. Yeah. I think there's a way to be honest with a six-year-old that doesn't involve like talking the way that I would talk to you or talking the way that I talk to my wife. <laughs> Let me define oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, like my daughter the other day, uh, she was over here for the holiday episode. She was in here before things got, um, out of hand and someone said fuck in front of her. And she's like, what is that word? And I was like, it's, it's a, you know, it's a word that you would get in trouble for if you said it at school. So don't say it at school. She's like, is it a bad word? And I go, there's no such thing as a bad word, but a word is bad. If you can hurt somebody with it, that's, that's a word that is bad. I guess you don't want to hurt somebody with what you say, but the word in and of itself is not bad. You know, I'm trying to get into like the weeds on this with her. Yeah. I don't know if I'm, you know, well, I'm impressed that she's reached age, the age of six without hearing the F word come out of she's very, mouth. she's She's very protected. I, I, you know, and I, you know, I don't care. I was like, you can say it in front of me. You can say it in front of your friends. Don't say it at school. You get in trouble. Yeah. That's or the, or the, I mean, it's always, um, or like even more recently they had their Thanksgiving lessons and they were asking what native Americans look like. And then I thought, well, I don't want to give some stereotype of based on appearance and then, but just also thinking, maybe this is an opportunity to tell them about the pipeline in North Dakota, which I hadn't. But then I just, I think the way kids are brought up in this country is, um, they're made, people are made to think that Native Americans are part of the past, that it's, they're, it's all done. But then that's why things like, um, that had to fight so hard for the, to get attention for the pipeline, because I mean, there were protests for months before people, other people came on board, but just because there's this embedded notion that you learn from the time you're in kindergarten that Indians are, are history and not the present. Yeah, no, there's a funny tweet that I, I think I retweeted recently where some somebody said, uh, you know, America's really going through a bad bad streak of luck right now. You, it's, it's almost as if it were um, existed on an Indian burial ground. Right. You know, and it's like that's a part of it. There, there are parts of our history that are so dark and that are karmically, I think, very consequential. Uh, if you believe in karma, which, which isn't anything like uh, too woo woo. I just think it's like, you know, you reap what you sow and you can't escape your past. And like this country has some dark legacies yeah. that, um, have to be reckoned with. And I don't think they've been fully reckoned with. Uh, I mean, you know, we could spend an entire hour on that, but yeah, I mean, I was at the, um, the new African American arts, uh, culture and history museum in DC. Yeah. I heard it's great. It's, it's amazing. Right. Um, I'm glad it exists. Yes. Well, cause well, for two reasons, like, cause I remember my, did you in the eighth grade have a trip to DC? Yeah. Yeah. So it's sort of like, why eighth grade? I don't know. I don't know if it's what you're learning in history or I went in eighth grade. Yeah. Everyone, I think everyone in California gets like shipped over. You see colonial Williamsburg. No, I was in Indiana. We got oh, shipped over okay. in October. It was yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was important. Like I remember seeing Kermit the frog at the Smithsonian or just anyway, you come away with a sense of pride or like this is American. So I think if kids visiting from across the country, go to that museum, they will begin to see that this is like part of, you know, the collective history as well. Is there a native American museum? There, on the is. there yeah, is. There is. It's, it opened about 10 years ago, I think. Okay. Cause um, it's important to tell those stories. And like my cousin went for the opening. Yeah. Uh, and I was, I was talking with him. 
after the fact. And he was telling me that what they have, like the, uh, the irons that, the Oh, the manacles, the yeah. manacles that the slaves were brought, you know, were uh, bound with when they were brought over. And, um, I don't know, I, I'm forgetting exactly what he was telling me, but there's a lot of powerful, um, artifacts and imagery. And there's also a narrative, like as you go through the museum, you know, it's not just slavery and Jim Crow. It's also, you know, the, the triumphal parts of it as well. Like, is it right? Yes. Yes. Um, like the cultural stuff, like the top floor is all about the music from the diaspora. There's an exhibit where you can do step dancing, like dance, dance revolution, except step dancing. Um, but what struck me was I saw uh, footage of civil rights activists from the sixties and their, their calls for equality and justice are, are as resonant today as they were in the sixties. Sad, sad, how resonant. Yes. And and so, and I think the museum had decided to end the historical timeline at um, Obama's first inauguration. But then you could just think of everything that's happened in the last eight years. I feel like we're regressing. Yeah. Like with voting rights. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of disastrous. And I think it's like, I, I think it's just sort of starting, but that's an issue that people need to really keep an eye on. Yeah. Because that's, that's part of the strategy is to roll back voting rights for people. And I think that's so twisted like that. That can't be in any, uh, anyone's mind, an ethical manner of trying to win an election. Right. Right. <laughs> right you know? That and gerrymandering. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah. Oh God. Don't even get me started. So we were talking about your writing ritual. Um, oh, hours we, of power, <laughs> hours of power. You drink caffeine. Uh, I drink heavy tea, but, um, but it's caffeinated. It's caffeinated. But if I drink after 1 PM, like if I'm at dim sum and I have too many cups of tea, it'll just knock me out. I'm, I'm sensitive to caffeine. You are sensitive. Yeah. Okay. I feel like I'm not even affected. I like it in the morning, but that's, it's usually it. Okay. If I don't sleep at all, I'll occasionally have like the midday coffee, but that's it. Yeah. Yeah. On the occasions where I've been traveling and the only thing they have is coffee and I've had it, I, I kind of feel I feel really wired and think, oh, this is why people drink. Hell it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, like, so, okay. So now you're saying you write once the kids are to school. Yes. All right. And then, so, but I mean, um, I may have, I mean, there's all these, you know, there's your work, but then there's like pitching places or corresponding. Do you have I, to get warmed up? Mm, I think I just, uh, I, I know some people read like a poetry for the first half hour or, um, I, what I like to do is actually the night before set out a checklist. So then I kind of feel like on one hand, at the end of the day, when I'm writing out the checklist, I can think about like, oh, this is what I did today. Um, kind of really sorting it out. And then then starting the morning with the with the list of things I need to do. Accountability. Um, yeah. Oh, that's good. Checklists are good. There's nothing more satisfying than writing it and then checking it and off or check- crossing it off. Have you done this your whole life? I think, yeah, I've, I've definitely been a, a list keeper. I need to be better about that. It's a, it's a discipline to like, actually, cause like you're plotting out your day, you're planning your achievements and then you're, you're seeing it on a piece of paper and there's an accountability. Yeah. Yeah. And it sucks if you didn't get it done. Well, it's, it's funny. It's someone, there are all these fancy systems. Someone, someone tells me something that like bubbles and like secret signs and symbols. So, but whatever works, what do you mean? They make, they, they, it's a whole, it's, I think it's called the bubble system, but Jesus, Christ. I don't know, but they were like, we'll teach a, a class at lunch about it. I'm like, I don't need, I just want to check. I yeah. just want to check the box. Exactly. Let me just check at the box or cross, do the cross out. Like draw a line through it. Yeah. Um, 
Okay. And then, uh, is there a part of writing that you find most difficult? Like writing fiction. I think sometimes when you're in an early draft, obviously you, you, you kind of, I never know the ending when I start and I have to sort of feel my way around to it. And sometimes you're so no outline. Yeah. No. For somebody who makes checklists, I'm kind of surprised. <laughs> well, I use a checklist for revision. You do. Like yeah. what, what, what would that look like? Uh, like today go through sensory detail or today, um, you know, make sure, uh, that there's in each scene that there's, um, like an element of, of tension that it, how it's resolved from scene to scene. So, so you have like, like a set of, do you have a set of specific things that you go like make checklists for in say draft three or whenever you're kind of going through a manuscript? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I have a master list of lists, but there are things I always do when I'm revising. Like one of the last things I might do is do an adverb check. I'll like do control F and see how many kind of trim back the adverbs. Cause I think. What do you search for? Like L Y? Yeah. L Y. Uh -huh. And then, or, and often it's easier of course to see this in someone else's manuscript, but favorite phrases yeah. or like verbal ticks almost. And so just, or I remember I was looking at a story of mine and I realized like I kept using the word battered and within 20 pages, <laughs> it's just wow. like, um, okay, Freud, let's, let's, let's well, try to exactly, pick that one. <laughs> right, right. But I'm just saying it, it was just, um, I think it's, it's good to have a checklist in revision, but I'm much more likely to be willing to write towards to start with a moment or a circumstance or a scene and then kind of feel my way around. But of course that can lead into to dead ends. But I think if I tried to outline something, it would feel like I sucked the air out of the story before it even began. Yeah. That's kind of how I feel too. Part of the fun is just like feeling your way there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. do you ever get depressed? Of course <laughs> you do. Uh, I mean, you seem, you seem pretty sunny and you seem pretty like, you know, nothing like I don't look at you and think, Oh, this is a person who, goes fetal and doesn't work for six months. Like, I think you, you find a way to get up and get the work done. Right. Yeah. In, in the end, but it, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think it's for, I don't know, for years you can sort of struggle and think like, is, is this going anywhere? Is there anyone out there? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck am I doing with yeah. my life? Yeah. Um, but I think it, of course that comes from being powerless. So, you find, I think that's why it's actually helped me to write a mixture of fiction and nonfiction, because if, um, I'm feeling, if I'm feeling stuck on the novel, then I can go work on an essay or go pitch a story about, you know, something, something else that I know will get published within a week, a month, a couple months versus that big question mark of when this longer project will be finished. Yeah. I think there's some merit to just, we're having, having like at least a couple things going at once. So you can kind of toggle back and forth. Like if one thing is resisting you, yeah, you go work on something else. So you're still being productive and you can have that feeling of forward motion while this other thing is sort of brewing in yourself, you know, your subconscious. Exactly. You know, Although uh, I do have a friend in my writing group. I keep telling him he's cheating on his novel. Yeah. Well, that's the other, that's the other part of it. <laughs> you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have some self-honesty, you know, right. it could be an avoidance tactic too, but um, because he's becoming, he's, he's writing these great short plays, but then 
is he actually becoming a playwright? But he yeah. thought thinks of himself as the novelist, you know? Right. So are you, you have a group. Yes, we've been together since 2002. Wow. So That's we used to meet run. in person, but now since there have been people who moved to other states, you know, had kids, uh, we meet by, by phone. Really? Yes. How many people? Four. Okay. That's, that's manageable. Yeah. I think, uh, like, as you were saying with the, the podcast you're doing, if it gets to be more than that, then it would be a lot of, what would you say? Yeah, too many cooks it, in the kitchen. Then it's also like somebody's got to like sort of be the master of ceremonies. Like you got to like direct the call. Otherwise, like everyone's talking over everybody. Yeah. Um, okay. So do you ever, like, have you ever read any self-help books or writing related healthy books that really helped you? Do you get into that stuff? Like, do you self-psychoanalyze? Uh, um, because I feel like there's a part of writing. There's a part of any profession, but I think especially something as solitary and inward as writing you know, it does require a level of, um, self-knowledge or self-mastery or mood management. Yeah. Um, do you have anything that's really helped you? Have you needed it? Well, I think that's why it's important that the times where you, let's say the writing's coming slowly, you think, okay, I'll write up. If I, if I write all the way up to the allotted time, you might wind up feeling worse if compared to if you took that last hour to go for a run. Mm -hmm. Um, it's when you feel off kilter was when I feel off kilter physically that, that, that kind of affects everything. So if I can, um, and you know, often it's during that run where that solution comes up because instead of you're like, I'm thinking really hard, I'm thinking really hard. Um, if you're out, you know, exercising or out for a walk, then suddenly the answer like, of course, yeah. this is, this is what hap needs to happen. Next. Are you a runner? I do like to run. Yeah. You are? Okay. Yeah. It's funny. I just, I just read this book called daily rituals. Have you heard of it? No, it's like a new book and it's basically just like a compendium of like artists and their daily rituals. Yes. And each chapter or section is a few paragraphs long. They're short little bursts. But one thing I did notice is that, um, there was a, among a wide range of artists, writers, painters, musicians, uh, a sizable number of them like had a walk, a long walk built into their day. Yeah. There are a lot of walkers, um, which sort of heartened me cause I like to walk, but I don't think that it was an escape from work. I think it was actually a part of their creative life. Yes. You know, you have to, at some point you hit the wall or you start to, you know, you spin out, you have only so much juice per day. And then once that happens, I think you go out and you actually move the body and you go for a stroll and it allows certain processes to happen. And if you lose that, then you can, uh, lose a part of the creative process. And like you say, you can also, it's also not good for your mood. It's not good for my mood to be totally just inert and sitting in a chair, staring at a screen all day. Right. <laughs> if you're, uh, if you're in your pajamas past noon, right. Then... <laughs> yeah. It's well, it's like, uh, what's his name? Robert Caro. I mean, this is a little bit extreme, but like he puts on a suit and tie and goes to an office, mm -hmm. which like, you know, just as an example, I think, there's something to that, like treating it like, you know, you're going to work. Like, I think if I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm looking fairly sloppy right now. This is my writing uniform. You're, you're wearing pants at least. I'm wearing pants, <laughs> which is a rarity on this podcast. But, um, you know, I think that there's something to that, like making it feel, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, formal. I, yeah, I go, um, occasionally I used to go more often, but I, I still belong to the San Francisco writers grotto. Oh, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. a workspace. It was founded by, uh, Poe Bronson and Ethan Waters and Ethan Kanan. Um, what's it? I think Joshua Moore goes there. You yes. Know him? Yeah. Although he moved to Seattle and now 
is moving somewhere else. But, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. He Because fl- last time I talked to him on this program, he was contemplating fleeing San Francisco. He did. He fled. Yes. and But from then I heard he might be moving somewhere else. Okay. So, um, and he has his memoirs coming out. I know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So you meet people like Josh, um, other people. It's, as you said, it's nice to sort of get dressed, go somewhere, talk to people at lunch. Feel then, like a pro. Or just feel like other people are... I mean, it was at the grotto where... I, you know, would meet, talk to someone who had been published or seemed very successful, but, you know, they'd say they had a book that they couldn't get published or someone else I talked to, her books have had varying degrees of success. And she said something that really stuck with me. She said, what if the books I wrote, I'd written them in different, can you tell me, uh, Caroline Paul. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she's had some success. So so yeah, yeah, she's great. She's great. (laughs) She's, she's wonderful. Um, but she, so she said, what if the books were, I'd written those books in different orders. Like what if the less successful book had come out first? Um, and then maybe she wouldn't have had an opportunity to write the other books. So yeah. it's just that understanding of like, um, how much timing and, and luck planned everything and just, just being grateful for what you have. Just so. being able to write books yes. with like impunity, which like, you know, let's hope it continues or you could say whatever you want to say. And yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's that it's the freedom of expression, but it's also to be like one of the few fortunate people on this planet who actually have time to sit around writing novels. Um, that's a luxury, even if you have to wedge it in to, you know, a, a very busy life. I think most people just, it would never even occur to them to be able to do this. Well, but then is it, you know, is it saying that because there's no manual labor involved that it's less taxing or less important or? No, no. I just think that, uh, I don't know. It feels like a privileged station or maybe like I tell myself that as a way of like working against the miseries of it. Like, what? Well, this is a real privilege. <laughs> no, no. On the other <laughs> hand, yeah, it is on the days it's going well, you you feel like the luckiest person on earth. And then the other, but other moments you, you're like, you're like, I'm doing all this misery is self-inflicted. Yeah. You have to really want to do it because yeah. everything is saying, don't do it. Yes. So, okay. And then with regard to like books that teach you how to write or books that, um, I don't know, get you into the right mindset or the right mood or any kind of self-helpy books. Like, did you have any of those books in your life? I don't ask writers this enough. Like, cause there's so much of doing this that is self, uh, that requires self-education. Yeah. Um, did you ever do any of that? Or was it basically just, I read fiction. i learn the tricks of the trade from that. I go to, I guess you went to graduate school. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I read Stephen King's on writing uh, like 15, 20 That's years all ago. That was <laughs> exactly. And that was it. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm sure I checked out, I remember checking out books from the library, like dialogue or how to write a novel or yeah. stuff like that. Um, but I think it's more just getting, um, both, you know, reading good books and trying to copy what they're doing, like, or borrowing or being influenced by them, but also talking, being part of literary community and hearing people's experiences and helping them out when you can and help, you know, them helping you out when, when they can. So yeah, those conversations, like just hearing you talk about like Caroline Paul or being at the grotto and talking to other writers, Um, and hopefully like that, that's one of the functions of this show is that like when you hear people describe their experiences, particularly those, uh, particularly those experiences from writers who have had some success and you hear about how difficult it was at times, 
Yeah. I always find that so heartening. It's like, Oh, like this is hard for everybody. And not only is it hard for those who have success, it's hard for them like every time, you know, it's not like, a, it doesn't seem like a profession where it gets like progressively easier. Like every time you start a book, it's blank. It's, you're staring at the blank page. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I, like, it's like one of those things I can never hear enough. It's a nice lesson to kind of keep relearning over and over again. And, um, and I think it, it's in a weird way, inspiring, or it gives you a sense of hope. I mean, that's why, yeah, as you're saying things like this podcast or any element of literary communities from conferences to literary magazines, to, to going to, or organizing readings is so important because we are alone most of the time. You couldn't write your book if you weren't alone, Yeah. but, um, that's why community is so important because both, um, as a chance to celebrate victories, but also to commiserate because it's just, it's a slog. Do, do you, do you feel like you have to have a high, like emotional pain tolerance? Like, is it, cause I, I don't like the idea of writers like dramatizing how difficult the work is. And you know what I'm saying? Like they can get a little old too. I can sort of like check myself where I'm bitching about how hard the work is, how lonely the work is. It's like, you know what? There are a lot of hard jobs. Like, let's not go overboard on this. But, um, I do think that like, like having said that, I listen to a lot of podcasts and I read a lot and it's funny that people in other professions who are very successful, who also write a book, you know what I'm saying? Like the, the Indian doctors who then write a novel yeah, or, or like, or they'll write some sort of book, nonfiction, yeah. you know, like a memoir or a book related to their profession or whatever. Yeah. One of the things I notice over and over again is that these people who are so talented, so smart, so successful, and usually like have a like great attitude or, you know what I'm saying? Like I, they'll be like, man, but writing a book was a fucking pain in the ass. Like they'll, like they'll point to it as a thing that they, that was like unusually grueling and difficult. And in some cases, not something that they would ever want to do again. <laughs> well, it is that whole thing. It's a, uh, like, how dare you, how dare you think you could write a whole book. And then once your book is out there, um, people you don't know will be reading it and judging it. And, um, making, saying things about it. And, um, it's, yeah, it's extremely vulnerable. Well, it's that, but that, I mean, just like the, the actual day to day of doing that work, the slog. Ha yeah. having to sit there and be still and be inward and face that blank page. And then the inevitable failure of it, where you spend like an entire day writing three, four pages, you think they're good. You go to bed happy you wake up in the morning and you're like, Oh, <laughs> right. Like that, that psycho, that psychological process can be really taxing. We're like, God, I don't know. Like I, I thought I had this yesterday. Yeah. And then you look at it and inevitably there's a, a million mistakes or you, they have to be trashed entirely. And you know, you do it enough. You sort of get used to the, used to it and accept it as the process, but, uh, it can be tough. Yeah. I mean, as I said, you wouldn't do it unless you really, really wanted to. And do you've it. always really wanted to do this. Yes. Do you know why? I think, uh, I mean, I loved reading. I think that's probably what a lot of your, your guests have, have said, but I think also, um, as the child of immigrants, um, are you first generation? For, uh, I was born here. Right. So my parents were immigrants, um, from for, they were born in China and went to Taiwan during the civil war and then came here for grad school. Okay. So, um, I think reading books, 
is not just for for pleasure, but it's also a way of understanding the world that isn't um, necessarily you have your world at home and the world outside it and of American culture and how, you know, what is this world of tomato sandwiches or of birthday cakes made from scratch? You, 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 um, it was my way of kind of understanding things, figuring things out that I wouldn't learn at home. Mm. So, um, in that same way, I think that's driven me in my journalism and in my fiction to write about, to tell untold stories, to tell stories unlike my own. Um, and so unlike your own. Yes. Okay. Cause it's interesting. Like I think somebody who's first generation, it makes like you, you, I was totally with you. You're like, I'm reading books because it's a way of kind of enculturating, um, learning about the world that's sort of, you know, that you're not getting at home or it's new to you or whatever. It would seem like, uh, and I've had writers on this show who've been in this similar set of circumstances who, have gone to write books because they want to communicate their story or, or stories that come from their perspective, which they don't often see in mainstream American culture or whatever. But you're talking about writing stories from the perspective or about people whose experience is totally different from yours. Often. Um, for example, in my, my book of short stories, I've ever won from a Hong Kong pop star fling a sex scandal to a Korean missionary in Africa to a Stanford imposter um, to a Chinatown elder going back to the old country to find a bride. So all but of it's these, often Asian. Right. I do have a story about a Mexican immigrant okay. boy who moved to San Francisco. Um, so, and, and you know, people often ask like, Oh, who are your favorite writers? Who are your favorite Asian writers? But I'm more likely to think of myself or gravitate to writers from the immigrant tradition, like mm. Juno Diaz or Edward Jantacott. Um, you know, but I love Gish Jen and other Asian American authors as well. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's a part of my journalism training, but you know, I, I, I grew up in the suburbs East of San Francisco. I had my trials and tribulations, but there's other people with more interesting stories that I'd, I'd rather tell. Not to say that there aren't elements of myself in it. Like, um, I have another story about a solo backpacker caught in a snowstorm and th that was something that emerged my husband and I used to backpack a lot before we had kids. So another fun thing that they took from me. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Until they get big enough to carry their own pack. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so yeah, like often, you know, that's always the question that comes up in readings like, Oh, which are these stories based on your life? Um, and I'd have to say that yes, but not in the way you think, not in a purely one-to-one -one, this, you know, I was a gay man who came out to my parents wow. because clearly I wasn't. So oh, I was going to say that's incredible. Exactly. <laughs> um, so, but really trying to understand, uh, why people in some ways, even though they're from their circumstances or their gender or their age might be different than mine, still understanding, trying to understand what, what makes them tick or why they might choose to carry out these secrets and lies. Hmm. And what did your folks do? They came over, they went to graduate school where in Berkeley or something or? Oh, in the Midwest actually. Oh, they, okay. So yeah. um, where in, in the Midwest? My dad was at the university of Iowa and my mom was at the university of Chicago. So my dad was in uh, engineering and my mom in, in sciences. And then moved West. Yes. And in, in the seventies. In the seventies. And had you? Had my sister. Had your sister. Or had my sister in Chicago, then moved west, and then had me, and then had my brother. Okay. But your whole childhood was in Northern Cal? Yes. All right. And it was and when, you know, your first generation, 
Um, was it a bilingual household? I mean, I guess your parents must speak English when, when they went to graduate school, right? Right. So my sister's eight years older than me. So I, her first language was Chinese, but mine was English because mm -hmm. just they'd been in America that much longer by then. Sure. But that said, um, you know, my grandmother helped raise us. She didn't speak English. So I learned from her. Um, you speak Chinese? I speak Chinese. Yeah. You do. Okay. That's, so, that's a good thing to, to know. But, you know, it's sort of like. Uh, I, I, I can chat with people on the bus or a taxi cab in China, but I like was trying to order tickets for the acrobatic show. And so like I was standing in the lobby and like trying to, ro I was rolling my body into a flip to try and explain like, <laughs> and then like raising my hands in the air, like, and finally they understood because yeah. that was just not a word I had picked up. Right. Well, yeah, like it's, it gets specific, but at least you're functional. <laughs> right. And if you went over there or you were immersed, you'd probably pick it up pretty quickly. Or they might, um... I remember another time we went to a restaurant. I don't read it. And um, I, I told the, the teenage waitress, I said, I, I can understand, but I don't, um, I don't read it. And she just did not understand. I said, could you please read the menu out loud? <laughs> so she, she read the menu out loud very slowly and very loudly as if I were mentally impaired. <laughs> that way I was able to order. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it seems like inc incredible to me, uh, like pictographic languages, you know, just like I can't even begin to think of how you would learn how to do that. I, it seems like uh, a huge, a huge climb. Well, I think that's why they're in school that much longer. Their day goes, I remember I visited a Chinese middle school for a story I was working on, uh, journalism, and they studied until like four, then the students cleaned up the classroom. There were no janitors, they cleaned up. Then they had dinner. Then they came back for another evening session. Wow. Because there's just, it takes so much time to memorize all those characters. Well, so. that's that though. But there's also like work ethic and the way, like how disciplined uh, students are. Not only like, because I find that, uh, you know, you hear stories about this um, internationally, you know, students in different countries who work harder and have much better math and science scores than American, you know, the average. Oh, right, Singapore. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a variety of places that seem to be outdoing us educationally, but then as a parent now, um, you know, my daughter goes to school with a lot of Korean kids and like they go to school and then after school they go to more school. Right. Kumon. Yeah. And I'm like, fuck you. Like I'm not doing, I'm not being a, a, a good parent, you know, like she's going to get out, she's going to get out done. And, but, I, but do I want to send her to school after school? Isn't that too much? Shouldn't she have time to be a kid? I don't know. You know, it's like a, but then they send, uh, but then, you know, parents from Asia are, the ones who can afford it will send their kids to the U S to have, um, um, for an opportunity where they can, um, I mean, it's happening even on the high school level where they think, okay, my kid will be more creative. There's going to be less pressure. So right. there's always, people are always wondering of what the other side might offer. That's true. I mean, a lot of I men, our college education system is still, still the top, still the top people come from all over. So I don't want to complain too much, but it is like, it is one of the, uh, probably the primary or one of the primary jobs you have as a parent is to make sure your child is educated well. Right. Or then wondering in my kids are just in kindergarten, like thinking, Oh, did I, have I already fallen behind? Some of the kids already can do this. So, yeah. I mean, how hardcore are you? Like, I mean, when it comes to like, uh, education and do you have any, I mean, do you have any insight? Like, what do I do? <laughs> I uh, your kids school. are older than mine. So you're that much, <laughs> you're, you're like a step ahead of me. Yeah. So. I mean, we send her to school try to get them involved in, uh, extracurriculars, but don't overdo it. I think so much of life in edu in education is social. Yeah. 
you know, part of it, the challenge of, I think, living in a city is, and just in general, is making sure that you give your kid opportunities to hang. Yeah. I grew up in the suburbs. I think it was easier. You could just like walk down the street and it was a different time. We could just get on our bikes and ride to our friends' houses and come home when the sun set. But in the city, you sort of have to orchestrate that for your kids. The play date. The play date. Oh my God. It's... <laughs> so, um, where did you grow up? You grew up in Indiana. What? My yeah. sister's a professor at Purdue. Oh yeah. I grew up in Indianapolis. Oh, okay. I mean, went to high school there. I was born in Milwaukee and split my childhood between Wisconsin and Indiana. Oh, okay. But well, what... I do remember the state motto. Of what? Indiana. Which is what? The crossroads of America. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The perfect. Cro- you know, Indiana. <laughs> perfect if you're on your way to somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Indian no place or like <laughs> nap town, you know, they have all these different names. Although we once, um, I, there's a foot race on that. So we, that comes around the time of the, the, uh, Indy 500. So the we, mini marathon? we ran on the, we ran on the track. Oh, isn't the it brick, the boneyard? Is that what it's called? I don't know. It's like a half marathon. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. They've done that for, I mean, I want to say it was called like the Indianapolis mini marathon. Maybe they've changed it since I left her. But I have to say like, you think, Oh cool. I'm running on uh the racetrack but it's like hot exposed oh yeah like. it's, it's may end of it's right. muggy it's disgusting yeah um you ever run a marathon do you do that stuff i did i did that once, once. and i've done one mini triathlon i think I, I i'm not gonna be one of those people who like runs a marathon every weekend no um are you type a you, you make lists you run marathons you type <laughs> a. uh but yeah people think i'm i'm laid back yeah you don't seem like like you have a lot of energy and i think you have focus uh, I'm fixated on the fact that you went to Stanford. Like you're, <laughs> Why? I always do this. Um, I have like a lot of, uh, insecurity about my education, but like, I feel like people who do that, like, you know how to get shit done. And I feel like you have a plan. Like you are a person who knows how to, uh, get what they want. Well, I think sometimes best laid plans often, you know, things don't always go according to plan, but it's good to have a plan. Have you experienced big failure? Well, it took me, uh, I mean, I started my short stories in 2002, you know, finished writing the last one in 2013, but had started sending a version of it around and maybe five years ago and, you know, rejection, rejection, rejection. So, I mean, you just, you, you know, took, um, yeah, I mean, it, the writing life is full of rejection, so... Well, I mean, you know, yeah, but some people have more than others. I feel, you know, I've had people on this show, it's like, well, I sent it out, and like three days later... <laughs> right. You know, and like there were multiple offers, and yeah. you know, and like, you're just like, oh my God, like that is an experience people have. Well, I do remember someone, um, I was talking to someone who's a writer, and he said it can take eight to ten years from the time you start writing seriously until you get your book published, if you get published at all. And I thought, oh... I hope that's not the case, but my, my, my first novel is coming out in 2018. Congratulations. Thank you. But I started grad school in 20 or 2007. So I'm like, okay, that kind of lines up with the, it just, it, everything takes longer than you think. Do you, do you believe in that 10,000 hour thing where you have to do like, have a 10,000 hour apprenticeship before you achieve mastery at a certain skill or something? Yeah. I mean, I know the theory and I can see how muscle memory can take over, for, um, you know, a, a sport or a skill, but I don't know. We were just talking about how it's never gets any easier, you know, the next novel that you start, right. like, it's just as hard. You may feel like, Oh, you know, I handle it this way in this book, but your next book is different. So I think, I think so much of my education as a writer, and it's something I have to relearn sort of perpetually, but it's, it's coming to terms with how hard you have to work. Yeah. 
you just don't want, like there's some part of me, or maybe that's just like a human thing where you just don't want to believe it. I can't be that hard. <laughs> I can't have to concentrate this much. I can't have to write this many drafts. Yeah, I'll get at this, you know, and then eventually the, you sort of surrender to it and you just, you know, you just grin and bear it and do that work. But that was a big thing. And it, it reminds me of this anecdote that I, I always have in my head where, um, Hemingway early in his career, like had this, what collection of short stories, Maybe it was a novel. Maybe it was like the lost novel that uh, his wife lost, you know, at the train platform or whatever. But he wrote it and he gave it to Gertrude Stein. And he was sort of like puffed up about it because he's like, here you go. Like I finished it, you know, yeah. like, and she read it and she was like, yeah, that's good. Now uh, start over and this time concentrate. Oh, like, just the, you know, like the ultimate, like, oh, but, you know, probably correct at that age. You know, I mean, as good as he uh, may have been or however much talent you have, like the first thing's usually not all that great or uh, the dreaded comment and workshop there's two dreaded comments one being the story starts here and they're pointing at the last page yeah <laughs> or this story wants to be a novel <laughs> no that means you wrote a failure of a short story so. and you have a lot of work to do yes you know a lot of work to do but um do you have i mean you have your writers group is the or the three people that you have that conference call with on a i guess a what a monthly basis or whatever uh, monthly to every six weeks we kind of slacked off this fall because i was doing book tour stuff. But. So, okay. So you give them your stories and do you have a methodology or some sort of process with them that lets you know when you've got it right? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, cause I, I'm increasingly convinced that like, that's a great thing to have, um, have some initial readers that you can really trust to tell you what you have. Like you can learn a heck of a lot between like the end of that first draft and however many drafts it takes subsequently to get to the final draft. If you have people give you considered feedback. I right. Know. And a, and a deadline to work to, Yeah, you know? Um, and since I've been together with them for so long, we know each other's sort of habits and ticks and we know how to kind of push each other. And, um, who's in this group. Can you tell me? Oh, sure. Uh, my friend, Maury Zeff, Jane Kalmas and David Baker. So, uh, a journalist, the the playwright, um, a mystery writer. So. Okay. okay. But we all met. Well, three of us met in um, a, a workshop with Michelle Richmond. Um, and David, I know, uh, is another journalist at the Chronicle. Gotcha. Yeah. But they tell you. I'm like, do you have to like, do they have to, does it have to be like a unanimous decision? Do you know what I'm saying? Can like one person dissent and two people like it and you go with the two? Well, you just know other people might see different things and it's their strength to see that thing. Yeah. And so, um, but then I also have, uh, friends with whom I'll trade like the entire manuscript with, yeah. but I think in the end, it's not like you want anything written by committee is terrible. Right. So right. you, whoever, whatever form your feedback comes in, whether it's by trading a manuscript or, um, it, within the small group, you, you sense like, you know, you have your initial emotional reaction, like they don't understand or, okay, maybe they're right <laughs> to, um, just absorbing it. You hear what you need to hear and then incorporate that in your work. But, but ultimately it's you making the revision. It's not, if it doesn't feel right, you're going to change it back to the way you want. Do you end. resist most notes? Like I, this is what I've found is that if an editor or somebody reads my stuff and tells me what they think, I take every note. I'm like, okay, like, what is that? That means I have like a weak vision. No, like, no, no. <laughs> like people are like a lot of times the, I think it's the opposite people are expecting where it's like, you know, don't get too, and you know, you have to be willing to kill your darlings and don't get too, and you know, don't fall too deeply in love with your own work. Somebody tells me something. I'm like, all right, 
whatever you say, I'll do it. I think, uh, I mean, I think I'm open to it, um, to feedback from, from, uh, journalism, but even as a journalist, you, you push back when you feel like, you know, this isn't right. Or, <laughs> um, so I think it's, it's always a, a process of negotiation because it's a relationship you have with yeah. them. You're not, you're going to see your editor again, or you're going to see your writing group again. You can't be like, F you and like flip the table over. And... Right. But I mean, I think some people have maybe like a more, um, or, or like a stronger opinion of their own work. Like some people really have a strong feeling about how it should be. Men. Men. See, but I'm not, I don't, this is a compliment to my character, right? Yes, here. it is. It I'm is. an amazing man. No, but I have heard that there are, uh, that men often present company excluded may be less, um, interested in getting feedback that, yeah, that they're just going to, once they evolve, they'll get it. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, see, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking it's like a deficiency. Like I need to have a stronger feeling. You know what I'm saying? Like some, maybe like my complete willingness to just roll over and take every note is like somehow like bad. But, but, but when you take the note, let's say you sure you're willing to be game and, and try the note, but then how do you feel about it? Do you feel like it's improved or if you like it's equal or if you don't like how it feels, because sometimes you need to try the note out yeah. to at least know that this is not the way. You... Well, this is what happened with my novel. Just, just to make this about me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like this, is what happened with my novel recently is I did, uh, an editorial process with a freelance editor and she read it. She gave me feedback. I tweaked the end pretty significantly, rewrote the whole thing, but it took every note sent the book back and had her read it again. And she read it again. She said, you, you, you know, this is a lot better. You did a great job. Um, I think that the original ending is better now that I read it again. Yeah. And so now I'm going to like, so like, you know what I'm saying? Like I tried the note out. Yeah. I tried that ending note out and I think I found like a, a decent way to the end, but like maybe like that's what I'm trying to weigh now. And so I think that it speaks to your point. Like, you try it on and then you have the original version too. You can weigh one against the other. Yeah. See what you think. But there's a, there's a usefulness to that process. Like had I not done the editorial work prior to going out with the book, I would have never done that. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, at least I know now that I have two different endings. Right. Well, when I, um, when my novel that's coming out in 2018, the original form of it, there was a different narrator for every chapter, except for one recurring narrator or a couple of recurring narrators. And it just, I think it was really tripping people, agents up. Cause yeah. I was, um, seeking, uh, to change representation at the time. And so, um, in the end I, I cut back the number of narrators. I mean, it's, that's like a pretty substantial editorial yeah. comment yeah. or, um, uh, no one said, you know, take these, uh, all these narrators away, but they, I felt like I had to at least give it a try, even though I was like, no, <laughs> Yeah. but then just, you just spend another year on it. And so then you get it into different shape and then, you know, then you realize that, but then on the other hand, I do think it is interesting to consider how many different versions of that book might've existed, yeah. but for who might, whose eyes fell on it and fell in love with it. Like, I don't know. I just wonder if there's, it's like that whole concept of like falling in love and meeting Mr. Right. Or is it just right. because you met Mr. Right or Ms. Right at the right 
point in time. Well, but it's also, I think it also uh, goes back to the writer's group that you have or finding a good agent or making sure you land with a, you know, hopefully a, a really good editor who is on the same wavelength with the work, you know, or, or really gets it in the way that you want someone to get it. Yeah. You know, if you can find those relationships, that's gold because it's entirely possible that your book could get acquired by an editor who does see it differently or who isn't on the same wavelength. Or you could have an agent who like likes your first book, but your second book is like totally not their speed. And that will affect their notes, which will then affect the way that you edit it, which will then affect the ultimate end product. You know, yeah. So it's, it's funny. It's weird to think about. Like you think about a book that really works, you know, for a lot of people, like a bestseller or, you know, some book that wins a bunch of awards, like you don't often think of it in that context. Like whoever, however many cooks there were in the kitchen on this with obviously the author being the primary cook, um, like the sous chef, right? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like whoever was assisting on this, you know, it does sort of take a little mini village. So you, you never hear oh, every, I was, uh, I've been saying this at readings, um, that every book in the store is a miracle because yeah. for it to even have, have reached that point, um, is there's so much against it. Again, going back to, you can only do it if you, you can only try keep at it if you really want to do this. Yeah. So. Well, and, and, uh, do any, either of your siblings artistic, like your folks, your dad was an engineer and your mom yeah, in the sciences in the sciences. So you're kind of a, an well, outlier. but I did have a grandmother who was a poet and apparently she was a high school, um, English teacher back in China. In the so 1930s. it's her fault. <laughs> right. Exactly. They always, it is funny. They always like credit, like, Oh, like there's myself. And then there's someone, um, in the next generation that is interested in writing. So, um, Chinese always like to think about things being inherited. Yes. <laughs> so, but um, were, were your parents supportive? You mentioned your father's no longer with us. Yes. He passed away in, um, 2012. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, but he saw you working. He supported you. Like yes. Yes. And even I was, um, working, working on a novel and he said, uh, you know, a portion was, um, excerpted in Ziziva. And so he, went and bought a two-year subscription to Ziziva because he <laughs> thought the rest would come out serially in the magazine. So, I mean, it's, he didn't understand the publishing process, but he was like, I will support her yeah. however I can. That's sweet. Yeah. Uh, what happened, may, may I ask? He had Parkinson's and he oh. had an accident. Oh, he did? Okay. Yeah. That sucks. And your mother's still with us? Yes. So yes. she must be stoked? Yes. Although everyone's always uh, asking like, oh, so did your mom read your book? And because they want that to be a stand-in for, does your mom love you? <laughs> But I actually think that's not that's, I know she's proud of me and mentioned me to the Rotary Club, but oh my God. exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, but she's a scientist. I'm proud of her work, but I don't read her scientific papers. Yeah. And no, then, I don't, you don't have to read my book. I right. always joke. I'm like, don't read it. Just don't. It's like, <laughs> you'll like me better. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I think, uh, but I did have an interesting, I, so my friends who are, uh, uh, some writer friends who are Dominican American and they were in an, an anthology called Wise Latinas um, about uh, Latinas in higher education. Um, and this question came up, like, do your parents, um, have they read your book? And they mentioned how they were somehow, in some ways, their parents not speaking English, of course, created this gulf. But on the other hand, it allowed them to write things that knowing that their parents would never be able to read it. Yeah. So that's kind of nice. Yeah. But I mean, there was a, there was a, a freedom to it, but also a sadness to it as well. Oh yeah. That's true. Yeah. It's like that. Yeah. I mean, 
I joke about it. Like, I can't imagine being a parent. And if I have a child, if my daughter uh, or son were ever to write a book, I would, you know, I can't imagine not reading it. I mean, as a parent, that seems insane. But we're American parents. So. But we're American parents. But, you know, I, I guess there's this, I guess there's a, you can imagine how that would happen. I'm sure it's happened more than once. Um, but I, yeah, I joke, but like, I really don't feel, I don't think I would feel hurt if my parents were like, yeah. So have your parents read your book? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. You know what I'm saying? Any, my parents will read everything I ever publish, I would imagine, but. Did they uh, even, were there, are there sex scenes? Yeah. And the drugs, you know, there's like an ecstasy scene and it's, you know, it's like all this sort of stuff. And it was like, you know, I have a, a whole, I can do a whole episode about how I feel about my book. I, I wrote it when I was in my late twenties, but. Um, but it was about that period of time. Right. So you can imagine what's in it and what kind of thoughts are going through characters' minds and stuff like that. But, um, I think that there is like, I never, I was never concerned. Like, uh, there's a part of me that's like, Oh God, they're going to read this, but never enough to hold me back, which I think is a function of personality, but also a function of how, uh, loved and supported I am. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, I think a lot of times people are either writing against some sort of parental relationship or writing from that kind of like nurtured place where you feel free to speak your mind and take those risks and know that you're, you know, you're not going to violate something that's going to cause the rule. I can't imagine ever writing anything that my parents would be, um, so distraught by that they wouldn't love and support me. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, though I guess there are some parents who like feel deeply offended. I mean, I guess I could, I guess it, it's possible I could write something that would, if you really? wrote a, a thinly veiled expose about your my parents. new memoir called "Fuck My Parents," right. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, there's a. I think it's more often the case than not that people who go into the creative arts come have at least one parent who really loved and supported them and made them feel like that um, unconditional support. Right. I think so, but. I'm sure there's writers that also write out of revenge and anger right. as well. So or probably, therapy. probably works better. <laughs> right. All that energy. God, you'd be fueled. I mean, that's the thing too, is that like, sometimes like maybe I was too nurtured. Maybe I don't have enough of an edge. Like <laughs> you have at least like your first generation, <laughs> but I mean, you know, that does, that's fuel. It gives you an edge and some drive. And, uh, like, do you ever worry about being motivated? Do you ever worry about like having the energy to do another book and face the blank page? And, you know, cause like, the rewards, let's face it, uh, are usually fairly minimal unless you get to a, you know, a very unique level. Yes. And, as I've said, there's famous and there's writer famous, yeah, meaning right? not that famous at all. Yeah. yeah. Speaking, going back to, uh, the students that said their dream was to be famous. Right. Well. You know, I, you know, like, yeah. How do you feel about fame? Is that something you want to be? Do you want to be a famous author? I just, I just, I'll rave about, I'll talk about like, oh, I met so-and-so author or I taking a class with so-and-so and they'll just, and I'm talking to people who read and they and don't even know. They just, they don't even know what I'm like talking if you, about. Yeah, Cause you know, like the whole Q score thing, you know how they measure fame with this thing called Q score. Oh, right, right. They use that in Hollywood. So like somebody who's got like a really high Q score, like they're a household name. Yeah. Somebody like has a really low Q score. Nobody knows who the fuck they are. Like, I think that if you had to, if you took a poll, we're, we're, we're living in a country where like, I want to say 40% of the country doesn't even know who Joe Biden is. Right. So, so like, like profoundly ignorant, yeah. um, Stephen King, if you asked the average person to name an American author, who would they name? It's like Stephen King or they would name JK Rowling. Who's not, uh, who's not American, not American, um, but it's like, who are the famous authors? Do you well, know what I'm saying? James Patterson or Nora Roberts or 
uh, Amy Tan. I, well, I always go back to thinking, like, who did Barnes & Noble print on their bags? Right. Remember they did, like, a woodblock sketch yeah, of yeah. certain authors? Shakespeare. Right. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, maybe that's as it should be. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe it, it's always been... I don't know. It hasn't always been quite that way, but it's always been sort of peripheral, but it's, it's depressing to think that there's just like one or two writers who are household names, people who are so talented, who are doing such magnificent, meaningful, powerful work. And so few people know who they are. <laughs> well, but then you never know where your work will end up or how it might touch someone. Um, this well, pertains after, after you're gone. <laughs> exactly. It's always later. Yeah. But uh, so I, I write a, a column, as I mentioned, for the Chronicle. And I, I wrote a column about immigrant writers and sort of the immigrant journey and uh, reinvention. And I quote, was quoting Edward Jontacott about how becoming an immigrant is on par with the you know trying to attempt the greatest works of art you're starting from nothing you know stroke by stroke you're building a life so my friend was at an al-anon meeting and she said a woman got up with my column and read it out loud in front of the meeting and had really related to it not because she was chinese american or a writer but because she was came from an irish immigrant family so i was just astonished no wonder she's at al-anon the irish exactly oh (laughs) (laughs) well but just i was uh i was just astonished you just never know where your how your work is going to move someone or reach someone at the right moment they need it and also you know it's it's a very cliched and sort of corny thing to say but if like one person reads your stories or reads your novel and it really hits them and you hear from them like how many of those do you need in order to feel like you've done your job or that it's, it's meaningful? Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, cause you will, even somebody who's publishing success is fairly limited by conventional standards. Like your book sells 500, 2000, 4,000 copies, whatever it is. Uh, you'll hear from people. That's one thing about it. When somebody reads your book, that's a process. And in this day and also writers aren't famous they're approachable they're writer famous they're writer famous <laughs> yeah. so i mean but you can find them online usually and you or you can find them on social media you can say hey and like you hear from people and you know it's weird how uh, as writers we process like how many of those do you need before you're going to feel validated our need is infinite our need is it's just a bottomless <laughs> hole but but actually recently um i uh, someone had gotten in contact with me he's a high school teacher of a school of the arts um in, in in la and so he said how much he'd enjoyed my book and i offered oh hey i can uh, he said he was going to teach it to his class so i said i can skype in so i did it it was it was really fun uh, i was wearing pajama bottoms and sweater on top <laughs> right. um but anyway the the kids were asking me questions and one raised their hand they're like how did you get in touch with her <laughs> like i i think people they don't realize that like, yeah, we're just on the other side of the website. We don't have like a, a, a staff of people speak for yourself. Right. Exactly. My staff is outside waiting. Yes. Yes. Um, well, I, I'll tell you what, I'm, um, I'm sorry that we have to end because I've been having such a good time talking with you, Me, but I, I myself I have, as well. <laughs> I have to go in and take care of my children. <laughs> yes. We're probably getting hungry. Um, congratulations. Thank you. On the story collection and the novel and the journalism. And the twins. You've got a lot going on. <laughs> yes. Uh, I wish you best of luck. Thank you for having me on. 
All right, guys, there you go. That is Vanessa Hua. Her story collection is called Deceit and Other Possibilities, out there now from Willow Press. Her debut novel, A River of Stars, due out from Ballantine in spring 2018. So uh, check out Vanessa Hua online. Her website is vanessahua.com. That last name is H-U-A. You can also follow her on Twitter at Vanessa underscore Hua. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music as always. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own app. It's the best way to listen. The Other People with Brad Listy app is free. It's a free app. You don't have to pay anything. Get the app for free. When you do that, uh, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free of charge. You get the most recent 50 for free. And then if you want access to the archive, you just pay uh, a small fee for a premium subscription. It's as cheap as 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything uh, anywhere you go at your fingertips. It's a, it's a good deal. More than 440 episodes and counting, including my conversations with authors like George Saunders, Tom Parada, Jonathan Lethem, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, Susan Orlean. The list goes on. Just dropped my pen. Hang on. All right. Uh, what else? If you want to email me, the uh, address is letters at otherppl.com. I need to, I forgot to read mail today. I have some mail. I'll try to do that next week. Reader or uh, listener mail. I will read and respond. If you want to email me, the, the, the address one more time is letters at otherppl.com. So yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's going to be a weird year. I would imagine it's going to get weird. It's going to get real weird. So I'm just going to do my best work. I'm, I'm going to try to do whatever I can to uh, remain appraised, but at the same time, stay focused on what's most important to me, and that's that. That's fucking it. See, there I go again. I'm just dropping F-bombs. I don't like that. I don't like... Uh, I like when it, when it, like I guess that felt so sort of natural. I just think that a little bit goes a long way with that. Not to sound prude, I just mean it from a listener standpoint. It's got to be completely natural and in the moment, and it can't be like loaded with uh, hostility. I don't think. I don't know. What am I talking about? I don't want to have a potty mouth. So, uh, I'm going to be reading obituaries. I'm going to be p potentially recording in the field. Should I do that? Let me know. You can tweet at me. You can email me. Let me know what you think. If I walked up to you in public with a, uh, furry microphone sock over my iPhone and was like, Hey, I have a podcast. Will you tell me your life story? What would you do? <laughs> That'll go over well. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. It'll work. It's not a big deal. It'll be great. Everyone's going to love it. 